Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Andrew Rice, and I'm the North American editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Martin, a Dutch producer who's been at it for 20 years now. He's been a key figure in drum and bass, dubstep, and more recently, house and techno, where he's known as a killer DJ and an adventurous producer. In a world often obsessed with subgenres and categories, Martin's draws his diversity. When we met in Boston this past May for Together Festival, we talked about that, how to stay relevant in dance music, becoming a parent, and moving to America. You can find a full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net or over at our SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Up next is an RA exchange with Martin. First thing I wanted to ask you is you moved to the U.S. four years ago, or five years ago now, correct? Um, a bit longer even, I think. Yeah, six, I think six years ago. It's a pretty unusual move to make for a dance music producer to move from Europe to the U.S. Uh, why did you do that? Um, it actually had nothing to do with music. Well, it has, a, it has a little bit to do with music. Basically, I grew up in a place called Eindhoven in Holland and uh, lived in Rotterdam for a little while. And um, I met an American girl, and um, we had a we have a relationship. And um, she lived with me for a while, and I just got really bored of Holland for some reason. It also had a little bit to do with you know my DJing, and I was traveling a lot more outside of the country, and it just became a little bit too cramped for me. I was ready for something else, and I traveled quite a bit in the U.S. and kind of liked it, and um, decided to move here. What did you like about it? The space. Holland is uh, very small, and uh, like literally in 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 a lot of ways, you know, it's obviously uh, a tiny little country with a lot of people inhabiting very small space. Um, basically, you know, if you would be on the train in Holland, um, there would not be a single minute where you wouldn't see something man-made, you know, because it, it was just full. I think also. Um, if you look at sort of Dutch inventions, for instance, they're always inventions for small things. You know, a, a Dutch person would invent something like a, something that would make, I don't know, a toilet roll holder, you know, more practical or something like that. You know, very small sort of ideas, uh, good ideas, but they're always kind of small. And I, I think that has something to do with the country or with the, with the space and the use of space as well. And also, uh, Holland is also very flat. And um, it's really strange, but you don't really see a lot of depth in the countryside. You know, there's no mountains in the background, so you only see maybe a few miles away. You have no idea if it's 10 or 20 or 50, you know? So um, I came to the U.S. and I came to uh, Virginia, next to D.C. Obviously, I've seen mountains before, but, you know, I saw mountains and much more sort of room for things, and you can just... Uh, you know, there's all these people that are sort of semi-hippies that, you know, have their own little thing going on somewhere in the mountains or whatever. And I was like, wow, this is pretty this is pretty cool. You know, that's something that you don't see that much in Holland because everything's so organized and so structured, you know. I thought that was kind of inspiring just to to live in that in in that area. And even though, you know, DC is also super corporate and you know, government people and lots of defense and military stuff. And so, you know, it's not it's not the most sort of free-floating hippie place in the U.S. But for me, it was, you know, it was kind of inspiring just to see a completely different environment. And obviously, I still was traveling a lot to back and forth to Europe for gigs and stuff. So it wasn't like I was really saying goodbye to Europe and never coming back, you know. I was there almost every month. So for me, it was just a nice sort of place to live and kind of chill away from sort of techno, just with with people that do something completely different than me, you know? 
and not only moving to the U.S., but moving to a place like D.C. or near D.C., which isn't like the usual place people would go when they yeah. make music, yeah. were you worried about how it might affect your career at all at first? No, because um, even when you live in Holland, you're kind of on the periphery of things as well. I mean, obviously Europe is a quite a smaller, a small space, but outside of London and Berlin and maybe Paris or something, you know, those are the centers, and everything else in Europe is basically also sort of on the outside, if you want to call it that, you know? So I was always on the outside. I was never in that center. So, you know, whether you are in, in D.C. or in Eindhoven, for me, that didn't really make much of a difference. And, you know, to run a label and things like that, you know, that's where you have the Internet for. So for those sort of things, you can you can do that anywhere in the world, you know? Do you feel like you're a part of the local scene in D.C. or do you kind of stay out of it? Originally, I stayed out of it be also because I lived in the suburbs and sort of my commute to the airport was much more frequent than sort of the commute into the city. I am sort of trying to to be of some sort of importance, you know, or to help out or, or do things, you know, like um, I play at U Street Music Hall in D.C. And, um, you know, I'm friends with a couple people there, you know, producers and people that run labels and a record shop and stuff like that. So, I mean, I do try to sort of be involved as much as I can, you know, for a non-DC person. Do you feel like there's a healthy scene there for dance music? Yeah, and, and not, not just for dance music, but I think music in general, you know, the, it has a, a really vast history of mostly punk rock and, and things like that and go-go. But yeah, there's always lots of bands playing and and yeah, also on the electronic side, you know, you have Future Times and you have um, uh, Thievery Corporation from way back. And there's just a bunch of, you know, producers that do stuff and a few labels popping up. So it's it's pretty cool. Has there been a change in the way you take in or absorb other dance music since you moved out of Europe? Well, listen to other music, you mean, different styles? Yeah. Or? No, not that much. I, I think, I mean, nowadays, I think most people source their music on the internet. You don't really have that sort of local music in that sense anymore. I mean, obviously you have local scenes, but it's not like there is music that you can only find in DC and you can only buy those records there or, you know, I think that's, that's over. I mean, I, I always listen to quite a lot of different music anyway. And um, I think that just sort of, Maybe it's a little bit broader, but I don't really think it had anything to do with my move. And you don't mind the schedule of going to Europe regularly? It's it's hard sometimes, but um, I mean now I have a daughter now, so it just makes it even more difficult. But um, for me, it's still worth it, although sometimes it doesn't make sense. But um, it's it's fun. Like I said, you know, I think the quality of life is nice here, and um, you know the the sort of peace and quiet that I get while working here. I think weighs up to, you know, moving back. Your daughter was born relatively recently, correct? Yeah, yeah. So how do you keep up the lifestyle of staying up late and DJing at parties and being a parent? Just no sleep. <laughs> Just eliminate, eliminate sleep altogether. Yeah, basically that's it, you know. Um, I, well, but the, the, it's, it's even um, when... Um, you know, when, when I'm making music and just working in the studio, I, I try to keep a really rigid schedule as well. So even before she was born, I already, you know, got up at seven and, you know, make breakfast and just get in the studio, turn everything on and just work, work, work till four or something and just do that day after day after day. Yeah. And then when I go to Europe, actually, I never, I'm never jet lagged because, you know, you just sort of move the schedule up six hours and that's when you're in Europe playing gigs. And then when you come back, you're back in your regular schedule again, you know? And yeah, with a daughter, obviously there is no sleeping in or this just, it doesn't exist anymore, you know? <laughs> so, but it's, like I said, I mean, it's really, it's worth it. There's, there's really no other way for me. So, I mean, it's hard to not sleep maybe sometimes, but you know, you'll, you'll have time for that later to sleep. So you think you can be a good parent and still be like a world traveling party DJ? Yeah, yeah. I think, but there's there's more people that you know. It's not just me. I mean, there's plenty of people that that manage it, you know, to find a way to do it. Or, I mean, it's. I must say, if we would have a support system here in the U.S., it would be easier. 
you know, like a lot of people rely on family, and obviously all my family is, is in Holland. So that that's a bit of a, a problem sometimes, but apart from that, uh, you know, you just make it work, or try and make it work. You mentioned staying up late. Obviously you're used to staying up late. You've been DJing for well over 15, 20 years now. How do you keep yourself interested in, in DJing for so long? Just uh, music and records. <laughs> it's, it's just so simple, but um, I, I also sort of, um, I, I quit smoking and drinking and drugs and everything and um, basically I'm just sort of you know relying on music and just always being interested in finding new music and hearing really good DJs you know rock a party um, and also um, I'm also interested in the people that go to the party you know just to be able to provide them with something that's not just you know hands in the air all night long, but that, that they can walk away with something that they've not heard before or, you know, a, a sort of exceptional experience of sorts, you know, that I could assist in, I guess. Just things like that, you know, just that make it, that makes it worth doing, I think. And it's, and it's also super addicting DJing for me. Just um, every time I do it and every time I sort of, stop i'm just sort of thinking about the next gig you know i just always want to play more gigs and that's why i also prefer to play quite long just to to sort of um you know space out my music a little bit more and yeah it's it's just uh, it's really addicting how much do you plan your sets in advance um nothing i guess you do have a sort of a routine like my record bag is sort of an evolving story you know where things i i, I take things out that i I'm bored with and I put new things in there but you know there's also a core that sort of stays there for a while and so it's not like you know every set is completely random and I start all over again but it's not like I actually plan things but you have stuff in your head obviously especially if you play a lot of sets in a row then you know you have your sort of safety records you know stuff that can sort of save you whenever you go a wrong direction or whatever or whenever you see that people are just totally you know not feeling it, you know, so you have a couple of those and you have a couple records that you want to keep till the end. You have a couple records that are good to sort of pace yourself. I mean, there's different types of records that you sort of classify in your head, I guess. And I guess some people organize their bags like that as well, you know. And um, yeah, and that way you can, without too much thinking, you can just play for quite a while. And it's not really pre-planned that way, but it's still, you know, you have a you have a routine, obviously. What are some of your safety records, or is that a secret? <laughs> um, no, it's not really a secret. Safety records are usually things that are, yeah, like sort of just nice techno records or nice house records, you know, that aren't too difficult or that don't really try something very new. Like a lot of the Trevino stuff that I put out on the label. I mean, because safety records, it sounds like it's kind of negative, you know, like it's sort of a just uh, an easy one, you know? But it's not like that at all. I mean, safety records can be really intelligent and really good too. But it's usually stuff that has a nice pace that doesn't really switch up too much. Like a lot of Mr. G stuff, I would classify as safety records or, um, yeah, Trevino, like DJ Gregory or, you know, that Point G stuff. You know, it's kind of not too much happening. Good to sort of, you know, get away with something difficult and you just drop something like that after that and yeah. So so it's definitely not a, it sounds kind of negative, I know, but it's not really, yeah, it's it's actually a really smart record, you know. I, I would never be able to make my own safety records because I'm just way too ADD in the studio to, to produce music like that, you know, to just sort of pace it for 10 minutes. I would I would not be able to do that. So so I guess it's a talent as well, It's a, or a skill. Um, I haven't seen you DJ in a while. Are you using vinyl now or CDJ still, or what's your setup like? Just vinyl and USB sticks, yeah. I used Serato for a long time, for about maybe six years. I started using it when um, I came to the US first because um, I was too scared to travel with records. And in the beginning, you know, I didn't have a visa and I wasn't like very pro about everything, so I just took my laptop. And uh, that's, you know, that's how I crossed the border. <laughs> um, so that's, that's really the reason why I started using Serato. And I just stuck to it. And I did like the feeling of having so many different 
records with me at one time and you know you can sort of move around you can go every direction you want you can play long without you know having issues or whatever so I always sort of saw it as a, an advantage but after a couple of years the sound started to annoy me a little bit especially playing before or after people that were just playing vinyl it just sounded thinner and and it's just a little bit different I guess and then the other thing that started to annoy me a tiny bit was that Serato itself didn't really develop as much. Um, it always stayed with this sort of idea of, you know, taking a laptop into the club. Um, you know, while, for instance, Pioneer with their CDJs and their USB sticks or SD cards, they basically almost do the same thing as Serato now, you know. But, uh, and I was always hoping for sort of an, an iPad version of Serato or, you know, just something that makes it easier to not have that stupid laptop there where you have to sort of, you know, look on all the time like you're checking your email or, or something like that. So I, that's, I really started to hate that part of, of DJing, you know? Because all the times you look at the screen, you're not actually looking into the crowd or you're looking, not actually looking at your records or... So, um, so yeah, after a while I just, I gave it up, you know, I was like, maybe it's just time to stop and at that time also a lot of music came out that was just vinyl only and I started buying more and more records again and obviously I had to sort of restart my collecting in, in the US. So, um, so started buying more records again and then instead of ripping them and then putting them in my laptop, I was just started carrying the records again, you know. And um, one thing led to another, and now I'm just sort of back at vinyl. <laughs> Did going back to vinyl change the way you approach sets? Yeah, yes, a lot. Because, like I said, I'm I'm quite sort of a an ADD type person, and I think with too much choice, I also was maybe in some sets a little bit too random, because you know there's so much music to choose from, and you know you. Just the possibility of going everywhere doesn't necessarily mean you have to go everywhere, you know. And sometimes I did that, you know. Sometimes it's like, oh, I have uh, this African record. It needs to be played too because I have it, you know. And it's actually not necessary. And um, when I started playing vinyl again, you actually limit your choice to, you know, what is, what is it, 50 records or 80 or how many, however many you take with you. And um, it actually makes your sets maybe a little bit more focused. And the other thing I like about playing vinyl is that you really have to plan ahead when you go to a gig you know it's like okay I go to Middlesex lounge I know what this place looks like I know kind of what the vibe is but you never really know until you actually get there you know so what am I gonna bring and with Serato I never did that you know because you always had the same laptop same stuff there was a lot of stuff but you know there was no focus and I think being a little bit more conscious about what you bring to the club and what you're going to play at the club, I think it makes you a little bit better DJ, you know? And I actually like learning and I like trying to become better even even though I've been doing this for a long time, you know? Just selection-wise, you can always become better, I think. Yeah, it sort of rekindled my, my love for DJing as well, I think. Just bringing good old records, you know, and enjoying myself. It, the other thing also is that um, with Serato, I always had like 20 minutes of stress before the gig because you know you get there and it's like okay uh, where do I put my laptop um, where's the you know power outlet oh how, how am I gonna sort out these cables while the other guy is playing you know it's all this sort of like it has nothing to do with music you know but you're sort of trying to get everything sorted for yourself and then the first mix is always like oh I hope nothing crashes or you know, the needles don't skip, or maybe my records are dirty, or, you know, there's all these little sort of things in your head, and you're like, hey, you're, you're supposed to be here to play tunes, you know? You know, with bringing records, I basically show up, I just listen to the music, and then when the guy's done, I take my first record, I put it on, and it, that's it. You know, it's really, it's so much less stress than, than using something like Serato, you know? I, I, I know I'm completely slating Serato now, but it's... Obviously, this is also, you know, a personal choice. You know, it's like, for me, it was a good time to stop that and start something else, you know? But, um, yeah, so, so vinyl for me is now a really nice and sort of inspirational medium, 
I guess. And then the USB stick is sort of an extra handy thing for new music, stuff that's not out yet, or you know, things that are still in the mail. <laughs> so, you've also played live sets in the past. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Completely different from DJing. First of all, because it's all my own music, and and usually when I DJ, I I don't really play that much of my own stuff. Usually, I'm just more excited by other people's music. Obviously, live, it's all the focus is on your own stuff, and um, it's kind of interesting because I think, um, like, a lot of my music has a certain atmosphere or a certain vibe and also a certain energy level. But if you play an hour of that, it's kind of boring if you have the sort of same energy level, you know? So you have to figure out ways to to have sort of a, a, a tension curve or something, you know, you have to build it up to to a sort of climax or something. So it actually changed a little bit um, the way I make music as well, because you need, um, you know, different songs for different parts of your life set, basically. So um, it ended up being uh, a, another sort of learning experience, I guess. And uh, I still play live once every while. I try to sort of keep it a little bit separate from the DJing side of things because it's very confusing playing DJ and live sets, you know, one after another because it's such a different thing. And yeah, it's it's not easy, you know, DJing on Friday, playing live on Saturday, and then DJing again on Sunday. It's really the sort of yeah mindset is is very different. So I try to sort of keep it separate and do like a, a live tour, you know, play ten gigs of live sets or something like that. Do you like playing live? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, in the beginning I I didn't because um, you know I was very sort of self-conscious about my own music and how it sounded and you know. But now it's kind of fun, you know. And it's it also had to do with you know you have to find a, a a right setup that works for you, you know that that is sort of leaves a little bit to chance so you can you can freestyle in your live set, but it also has a little bit of stability so. You know, if you sort of lose your way, then at least you can just press one button to get back into the <laughs> to get back into the groove. You know, so um, but once you find a, a, a nice way of working, that gives you a bit of freedom. Um, yeah, it's it's actually quite fun. On the subject of productions, your last album featured quite a few collaborations, and you've also done the project with uh, with Steffi. Mm -hmm. But it seems like in the past you haven't done that many collaborations. No. What what changed? I guess it also has to do with, you know, being self-conscious about your music, you know, like when I started making music, I didn't really think it was all that amazing, you know, it was usually other people that would tell me, okay, you know, you should put this out on a record or I was never really that sure about it. And then I think um, I was also quite protective about my music, even to the point that I was like, well, you know, if I collaborate with people, it just feels like they're invading my space, you know. And maybe also my ideas in a way. And I was like, you know, I kind of like my own ideas. And, you know, maybe to have someone else in the studio and sort of see how I do it. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't feel, it didn't feel right. And then I think something changed when um, I sort of um, hung out with the sort of brain feeder lot, Flying Lotus and people like that and, and they were always like, okay, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate because, you know, everything you do together with other people, they bring energy into the story, you give them energy and, you know, to, to sort of exchange that is, is just really healthy, you know, and it's very, um, it will actually help you instead of, you know, it's not like people are stealing your skills or whatever and then running off with them and then making all your stuff, you know, it's not like that at all, it's basically... You know, if you if you share this experience with people, it'll actually help both sides, you know. Even though I saw, you know, people like Flylo just collaborate with everyone and actually bringing really good results as well, I was still not really sure, but, you know, I just thought I'd give it a go and, and, and try it out and see what happens. So I did one, uh, for the last album, I did a thing with Fortet and I worked with Inga Copeland and then I worked with Steffi, which it's three really different people and also the sort of studio dynamic is very very different from each other but yeah every everything just felt like it added something to my you know knowledge and my inspiration and i hope you know it did that for them as well i think i think it did so yeah that's that's really what 
collaborating should be about, I guess. And um, I'm still not a huge advocate of it because I also think a lot of collaborations are more like sort of, you know, you just add up the numbers and then you get something else and it's not, it not, not always works. Like there's plenty of collaborations that sound really amazing on paper, but then if you would actually hear the result, you're like, yeah, it's all right. It's not, you know, it's not actually a sum of the parts. So, so I still think it's, it, you have to choose very carefully who you work with and, you know, also be really strict about, you know, if it doesn't work, it just stop it and just not do it, you know. But yeah, I must say that the, the last few things that I've actually collaborated on and sort of open myself up as well, you know, not be too protective of my own music and just, you know, give them stuff, they give me stuff and we work together and, and yeah, that works really well. With Steffi, you've released an EP and you're, I hear you have more on the way. Mm -hmm. uh, what makes her such a good partner for you? Well, maybe it's, uh, there's probably sort of a cultural aspect to it because we're both Dutch and so we speak the same mother tongue and it just makes it a little bit faster to communicate, I guess. She's even from the same area as me, so we even have the same dialect. <laughs> but um, so, so that's, that's kind of one thing. Um, the other thing is also that she has a really good work ethic. While I sort of free float a little bit sometimes in the studio and also waste time. Well, no, I don't know if I actually waste time, but some days I don't do anything useful and other days I do a lot. But she's much more sort of steady. You know, every day she does sketches, she makes beats, she does things. And so um, I like that steadiness to it. And, you know, it's like she keeps me awake in a way. So um, so it's a good way. And, and then the other thing is also that we're so different in making music. You know, I started with um, just a laptop and quite software-oriented and slowly moved towards more analog equipment. But she is pretty old school when it comes to making techno you know there's a big studio it has the classic drum machines it has the classic synths that's how we do it you know and um for me a lot of that stuff is brand new i mean i know how, how a drum machine works but yeah there's a lot of things that i have no idea about you know running a full-on analog studio so and then there's also things that i do in software that she's never seen before so it's kind of cool to you know show each other these things and and yeah, and I think both are sort of rooted in Detroit techno and in that sort of sound. That's when we started listening to music, to electronic music. So we have that those roots, and so it's kind of easy to, you know, talk to each other about what we want, you know, because we have the same references. It strikes yeah. me that you haven't released much of your own music on your own label in a long yeah. time. Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I, I kind of know. I started the label to just release my own music, basically, because um, I signed stuff to other people, and you know, when you sign a record to another label, you know, even though you might think it's really urgent that this record be will be in the record shops, uh, a lot of people, you know, just do things their own way, you know. So um, I always got sort of pissed off with labels because they took so long, and you know, they always had a schedule, and they have to wait for the, la the next release and then you have to come after. It was, so it was always pain in the ass, basically. And I thought, you know, if I start my own label, at least, you know, when I finish the track, I can send it to mastering tomorrow. In two months, it's in the shop. That was the original intent of the label. And um, that worked really well for a while. And then I think, you know, I was maybe lured away a little bit by other labels and, you know, people wanted me to do things for them, you know, remixes or an album like Brain Feeder or Ninja Tune. And, um, you know, I, it's kind of nice working just as a musician and not as a label owner and just having other people taking care of everything and just be a musician, just spend time in the studio and just be flaky or whatever when you want to. And, you know, so, so I did like, I, I thought that was appealing. And um, I think that's also a reason why I worked with a lot of other labels. I always try to sort of be careful about which labels. You know, it would be only labels that I really enjoy its output or the people behind it. Or So um, so I, I never really regretted any choices or anything like that. But um, after a while, you know, 3024 became much more sort of an outlet for people that I thought were interesting 
or people that did maybe something different, you know? And um, I think that was a really healthy period of the label when we put out records like by Mosca and Jacques Green and John Convex, the first Trevino record, you know, that sort of stuff. Because uh, those people really, um, you know, were trying to do something different uh, or trying to make something especially for the label. And um, I think those records, I'm really proud of all those records. They're all, they're all really good still, I think. And then I was at another point in the in the sort of label's history where I was like, well, I can do two things. I can make this label much bigger and do albums and, you know, become sort of like a hyperdub style label with a bunch of artists and a roster and label nights and things like that. But um, it just didn't really feel like me either. You know, I'm just maybe not too organized enough for it. So now the label is kind of weird. It's kind of a mix of, you know, collaborations, some stuff that's hard to find for people that I reissued. Um, I'm, I have a couple sort of new people on there, like Leon Vinehall, who's done really well last year. Um, so yeah, now it's kind of freestyle now. There's not really a, a good concept behind the label at the moment. But um, I'm always like, well, as long as it's all high quality records, then I'm going to be okay, you know? So you're not worried about the label not really having that much of a uh, like an identity anymore? I think it will still it still has an identity. I think the identity is me and that you know everything that I like is on the label. There's not really any sort of rush to release stuff just to stay relevant or to to sort of you know vibe with a certain sound that's trendy at the moment or you know there's none of that. It's just all music that I'm behind, music that I like to play out. Um, that's basically the the identity, I think. Yeah, but but at the same time, it's yeah, it's quite freestyle at the moment. Is there a reason the releases have slowed down on a label at all, or has there been a slowdown, or am I just imagining that? Um, it's probably yeah, it's a bit slow, but that's yeah. If I don't find anything that I like, then I'm just really not that bothered about putting anything out. You know, I don't want to be one of those labels that has to put a record out every month or two months because that just seems really boring. Um, so yeah, so if there's no good music out, then I'm not doing anything. I don't know, it's kind of random, to be honest. But um, I quite like just having a, it's kind of like a nice side project, you know. It's a, a thing that I can work on when I want to and when I'm, I feel like it. And, you know, sometimes I don't. I just, you know, go in my own little musician bubble or in my DJ bubble and then not really that bothered with it, I guess. I would say like five or six years ago, you were kind of at the the crossroads of dubstep and techno, and you're you're at, you're at like the the head of a certain movement. And at this point, you have kind of settled into your own like Martin sound, Martin bubble. Do you do you worry about staying relevant, or are you comfortable where you are? I think um, I'd be lying if I would never think about that. But um, but and and maybe that has more to do with uh, age, or with how long you're sort of in a, in a certain scene, you know? And um, I mean, not that I want to call myself a veteran or a old guy or, or whatever, but I have been doing this for quite a while. You know, I think um, I started DJing in 19, 1995 and um, production in 03 or 04 or something. So it's, it's been a while, you know? But, um, and I guess, um, a lot of the music that I've made has also been sort of, you know, significantly placed in certain scenes and genres and things like that. And um, I mean, although I never really see it that way myself, um, I guess when you're a little bit older, you sort of look back, you know, and you're like, oh yeah, uh, the dubstep days, I did this and this and this, you know. And not that I was really doing that at that time because I was just making tunes. But, you know, if you look back at it, it's actually, you know, you sort of believe your own sort of history or, you know, people like you make this, write this history down and then, and then it's there, you know. So, so yeah, I do look back and I guess relevance, what's relevance, you know, I mean, let, yeah, let's just call it by name, you know, if it's, the, the, if there's like the heyday of dubstep and you make a couple big tunes and you get a lot of hype and you get a lot of press and play all these festivals and blah 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 but is that really is that relevant you know is that relevant 
I don't know, you, you, you're sort of on a hype and maybe your name is on everyone's lips or whatever, but I think relevance, you can only sort of talk about that maybe um, five years after the fact, you know? Like if I look back at dubstep now, there's maybe four or five people that I think really shaped the music and the rest of those relevant people, they really weren't really that relevant, you know? And um, I think that goes for most genres, you know, it was the same in drum and bass and it's the same in, in whatever, you know? So yeah, so I think relevant is, uh, is very, I don't know, subjective, I guess. And I think nowadays I just like to make music that I like and I know that I can represent and I think the relevance of it will maybe show through in five years or not. Do you ever get nostalgic about the drum and bass days or the dubstep days? Uh, not about dubstep because um, for me, I wasn't really in that world. I mean, the music, like like I said earlier, you know, the music that I made was sort of classified as, and um, it was only after it was classified as that I got to play nights like Forward or DMZ or play. So I was actually injected into it quite late, you know, while the people that actually shaped it, you know, the the Malas or Scream or Hatchow, or, you know, those sort of people, I can imagine them thinking back about, you know, the early days of dubstep or whatever. For drum and bass, it's a little bit different for me because I was actually there relatively early, although it was I was very much sort of based in Holland and I started doing just drum and bass events before I DJed at them. And um, yeah, you know, I'm nostal nostalgic about the events and about sort of the experience of, uh, I don't know, having uh, Goldie play at my night or, you know, those sort of things, like real memories, you know? So yeah, for me, that's, that's completely different from dubstep. I've noticed a lot of artists playing like old school DJ sets, either for dubstep or drum and bass or jungle. Yeah. Is that something you've ever considered or no. interested in? No, purely for the reason that, um, I, yeah, I think um, every DJ set, I mean, I do play a lot of old music, but um, I don't think it's good to sort of limit yourself and do an old school set or because you you also automatically label yourself as an old person <laughs> you know and um so i mean not not that i'm i'm fighting the old age but it's it's much more that um yeah i don't i don't know it's it's not interested interesting for me it's i just want to do new things you know and play new music and that sort of uh, that was always sort of the 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 common thread you know, in all my music, I think, and in everything I've ever done is like, okay, I want to show people new stuff, you know? So it would just be really weird to, you know, go dig in my old drum and bass records and then, you know, play a, a 2002 set or a, a 1995 set. It's weird. So. As someone who was kind of injected into, into dubstep, you moved to the U.S. right around the time that dubstep exploded into EDM and then EDM exploded. And to what? <laughs> I just exploded. <laughs> and I, I noticed in an interview last year, you said that you felt like EDM had moved out of the clubs into festivals, yeah. and so that clubs in the U.S. were good again and were getting better, and yeah. EDM had kind of left that realm. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that at all? Yeah, because uh, when I moved to the U.S., um, I got to play a lot of, you know, dubstep, in quotation marks, nights. And um, some of these nights were really great, you know, and I would play with people coming from the UK um, and, you know, we'd have really amazing nights. But uh, more and more, I ended up sort of warming up for people that would play sort of proto-EDM or, you know, something that's now, it was then called bro-step. Yeah, so so I, was, I would play these nights and I just got really depressed because I would play for two hours, try and do all these new things, you know, play like uh, hot new 2562 records and... and all that and and people enjoyed it you know they were like yeah this is great and then the first record the next guy would play would be like this sort of enormous you know wobbly bass explosion you know with like horror samples and like you know build-ups and all that and it just sort of completely takes away the effect of whatever I had been doing the two hours before that you know and um yeah it's, it's like why am I here doing this you know so I actually um, uh, stopped playing gigs for a while in in the US or be very selective with gigs because 
I was like, you know, I don't really want to do that. You know, like uh, we were talking about this earlier. I played this the Detroit Music Festival, and I played, and then after me was Excision from from Canada, and it's the same thing. You know, like my face when that guy started his first track is like amazing. I never heard about him before, so I was like, well, what is this? You know, so yeah. It, after a while, I was like, you know, this is just not it's not right you know this is not what i want to do i rather just you know fly a little bit more to europe and just play nice gigs in europe you know so i, I really had a, a rough time and then yeah i think edm got bigger and bigger and bigger and it actually um i said that before as well once um it actually became sort of uh rave music you know much more so for outdoor festivals and um i sort of compared it to the new metal wave of music maybe you know 10 15 years earlier the sort of limp biscuit and you know that lincoln park and all that sort of kind of emo-y metal stuff that a lot of college kids like liked edm sort of took that place now you know and um that actually freed the clubs up to go back to just you know quality club nights and uh, and i also think that the last few years there's been a lot of new clubs coming up and a lot of people taking promoting more serious and getting good talent in and so i think yeah there's a lot of it's actually improving a lot at the moment as someone who works as an electronic music artist in the us do you feel like edm in general has changed the way the general population thinks about electronic music um yeah yeah a little bit i mean uh, although i must say europe is not that much better I mean, the difference, I think, is that in, if in Europe you walk into a mango or, you know, like a clothing store or like a Zara or something, um, you'll hear electronic music. While if you do that in the U.S., you won't. You know, you'll hear rock music. So the basis of that sort of mainstream sound you hear in the street is, you know, is different. But, I mean, you know, in, in Holland there's plenty of people that, you know, if you go in a taxi and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm a DJ... They're like, oh, you're famous like Tiesto. You know, it's a, and I guess, and that's the same in the US now. You know, that sort of taxi level is, that's, that's here now as well. Which is kind of funny. Maybe a big difference is that in Holland or in, in Europe, they would ask what kind of music you play. And here they ask, are you famous? That's the, that, so there is a sort of cultural difference. What, what's important, you know, what kind of music or if you actually make lots of money with it, you know. But, um, but yeah, so it has changed a little bit over the years, I think. But, uh, and people here, sort of, you know, people that have nothing to do with electronic music, they now recognize that there is something like electronic music and, you know, with all the good and bad things that come with it. What are some of your favorite places to play in the U.S.? Boston. <laughs> Aside from Boston. New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Denver, Miami, and Canada. Uh, most, most cities in Canada are nice. That's, Yeah. Have you gotten less selective with your gigs? Mm, it, it depends. I mean, you know, it, it depends a lot on um, what the offers are. You know, sometimes you get a lot of stuff and you can turn down things. Other times, you're, you know, you have a lot less going on. It depends a lot on, like, you know, if you have an album, there's a lot more people that want to get you. So you can be selective and you can, you know, choose the right places. And then, like, you know, now I'm sort of in between albums. And now it's basically just, you know, writing and working with promoters that I always play for, you know, that I play for regularly. Like, you know, like here or in Miami, for instance, I come, come back a couple times a year. So, it's, you know, you just sort of keep a lower profile for a while and until there is another album and then you just crank it up again. Do you feel like at this point you're pressured to be constantly putting out music in order to get more gigs? Or can you subside without releasing anything for a while? I mean, I'm, I'm quite slow in general. You know, if I sort of see my, my own Discogs list, you know, the, the first couple of years I did lots of 12 inches and then I did albums and it just slowed down a lot. But um, I don't know, I am actually sort of working on getting a bit more sort of regular schedule just because I'm also making music a lot more now and it's, it's actually fun to just do 12 inches again you know albums are really big projects and they usually are very taxing so you know you work on something for maybe eight months or whatever that's usually sort of how long i'm in the studio for something and then after those eight months there's about six months of 
preparation before the actual release. Then there's a tour. You know, so it's quite a long stretch. You know, it's maybe 15 months that you're actually working on one project. And, um, you know, 12 inches are so much easier. You know, it's basically a couple of weeks in the studio and when you're happy, you put out the record and that's it. And you go on to the next. So at the moment, I'm, I'm actually on that tip a little bit where, where I'm like, well, you know, I do shorter projects and uh, it's more fun. It's also easier to manage now, you know, with family situation and things like that to just do these little things until I'm ready again for an album. So you've been DJing for 20 years, producing for over a decade, and you have like your schedule down to like a 9 to 5 work day. Yeah. Uh, are, are you going to keep making music it's for the rest of your life? kind of boring, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I got it all down. It's done. <laughs> but do, do you think you'll keep doing it for the rest no. of your life? Um, I don't know. You know, besides all this, you know, there, there's much more to me than just, you know, the music side of things, I guess. Um, you know, I, I studied something completely different, like literature, and uh, I wrote a little bit, and, you know, now I'm studying, again, political science. So it's a completely different thing. And I don't know, I, I always like this, this sort of Renaissance man idea, you know, where you do different things and you're trying to be good at everything. Um, so maybe after a while I'll find something that crosses over from music or from something cultural to something political or something social. I have a few sort of social issues that I work with and that I try to support. And yeah, I think, you know, just in order to sort of give back a little bit as well. You know, I think that's really important in, in being an artist that um, whatever you acquire, um, you also do something useful well, do something beautiful with it for for one, but also do something useful with, you know, try and sort of give back to people in one way or another, whether it being, you know, supporting young artists with your sort of experience or your knowledge, you know, charity or lectures or, you know, classes like, like this sort of initiative, you know. I think those things are really interesting to do and I think it's also kind of the time for it now. What are the social issues you work with or work for? Like, I raise money for um, uh, an initiative in Baltimore. It's called Holistic Life. Basically, they, in short, they teach yoga to kids from sort of, you know, those areas that have been in the news the last few weeks. So things like that. And, um, and also, I'm sort of interested in, like, political issues and international relations, things like that. Like I said, you know, I think it's really important to, yeah, to do something with, with what you have acquired and, and, and um, I, I wish more people would sort of, you know, forget about the selfies a little bit and, and, <laughs> and that sort of thing and, and consider, consider other options of what to do with your experience and your traveling. Do you think electronic music is lacking in social awareness or political awareness at all? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of the culture is about, you know, ego or about the people that make the music or, or the DJs. And I think it's not really, it's more about the people in the room, I think, and what they do and what they think and what, what their daily issues are, for instance, you know, and why they're at the club and what you can provide. And, and that's actually a much more interesting thought, I think, than, you know, pictures of airports and and that sort of thing. Although, you know, I have made pictures of airports myself. <laughs> but, um, so I, I admit that. But yeah, you know, it's it's sometimes if I look at my, my sort of Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and you see all these DJs doing all the same lifestyle, and I mean, it's maybe from the outside, it's maybe sort of cool. But, you know, it's really only cool for a couple weeks, you know, and then after that is just a lifestyle, you know. So, yeah, so I wish I wish more people would sort of stand up, do something, you know. Like I, I play at Panorama Bar quite regularly now, and um, they also have a sort of social component to to the club, and, you know, they actually raise money for a lot of really good things, and they do benefit nights and stuff like that, and I think that's, you know, that's amazing. That's that's the direction that I think we should go into, you know. Walking by the spirits of a new life dawning. Are we dreaming?
Unlocking the code is our only chance. 